Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you right now and I thank you so much that your word is a source of life, that from it we are blessed and formed and shaped. I thank you, Father, we do not need a rich history with you to understand your word. We just need availability to listen to your Holy Spirit. So move amongst us afresh today. Form us and shape us. May your word not return void. But in all things, whatever room we're in, this one or somewhere in Australia or the world, may we hear your voice, sense your presence, and know that you are with us. Less of me, more of you I pray in God's name. And everyone said, Amen. did I say less of you, more of me? I think I did. That's not right. It's meant to be. <laughs> I've done it once before as well. It's like, wow, this is not the kind of church I want to be a part of. The way I think what I was meant to say is more of you, less of me. So, and it wasn't a Freudian slip for all those psychologists out there. Or maybe it was. Friends, so great to have you here with us today. I want to tell you a story. You know, I'm in a season of life where I've got two young boys. So a lot of my sermons start with stories about them. Because if you're a young parent, you know that's kind of like what you do at this moment. I've got a one-year-old named Banner, a three-year-old named Archer. And Archer is going on, um, he's three, but he's turning 15, all in like the space of a night. He's got a whole realm of attitude at the moment. But he's also so much fun. I love being a dad to my boys. It's so good. There's just these moments. But I've had to learn how to discipline well. How to, how to use, uh, not, not anger or aggression, but, but calm and comfort to guide their lives. Archer being three, he has these moments where he gets overcome by these random spurts of testosterone. And just in those moments, he sees uh, you know, his brother, Benno, which is like a, just, you know, a blob that just crawls across our floor at the moment. And he just goes, I'm going to go and just like, lift him up and put him on the ground really hard. And he goes and he just randomly just kicks his brother or like lands on him or sits on his head. And his brother starts crying. And we're like, what the... Archer, what are you doing? The first thing he always says, it was, I was just excited. I was just excited. And I'm like, that's not an excuse for anything. Imagine getting pulled over by the cops. Like, I was just excited. That's why I was speeding. And then he goes, oh, it was an accident. It was an accident. I'm like, no, well, it didn't seem like an accident when you sat on your brother's head. And so Sarah's comforting Banner. And I usually say, hey, Archer, why don't you come? Dad just needs to have a chat with you. Come to the lounge with me. And he started doing this thing where he's like, no. I don't want to talk to you because he knows what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a chat with him about his behavior. I'm like, no, 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 Archer, I'm your father. Come have a chat with me. No, I don't want to have a chat with you. So I'll go get Archer. I'm not asking. Come have a chat. No, you're being annoying. Stop talking, daddy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. So you still know it doesn't fly in our household. I don't compete. I'm like, no, oh, whatever you say, Archer. That's, that's fine. So eventually we end up on a couch together. I'm holding him and he's usually screaming. And I'm like, hey, listen. He's like, I don't want to talk to you. And I say that it's not about what you want to do. It's about what I'm asking you to do right now, son. That's what we're doing. He's like, looks in my eyes and calms down. And we talk about it and talk about being gentle. But there's that moment, right, where Archer's like, I don't want to have this conversation. But I, as his father, like, no, we're going to have this conversation. I'm going to raise a gentle boy. We're going to be kind and loving to everybody. He's doing so well at it as well. But I say that because I think we're a bit the same. There are conversations in our world and in our life that we want to have. Things that we're nailing. Hey, I hope the church talks about this. Because I've got it going right, but oh, that person over there could use some help. But there's a bunch of stuff in our life that when we talk about it, it's like, I don't know if we really need to be discussing this. Is this really important? Is this really what the church needs to be talking about? But when we look at the way of Jesus, Jesus came and he said, Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He stepped into cultural moments and he didn't say to the Pharisees, Hey guys, what do you want to talk about? 
he so often directed the conversation to what he knew they needed to talk about. That's why we started this series. We do it every year for the last three years. It's called Crucial Conversations. We talked about mental health. We've talked about race. We've talked about a whole plurality of things. And this year, when we're stepping into this, I just want to let you know, we don't choose these conversations based on a popularity context. What, what will get people to church? How, you know, what, what juicy idea can we unpack so people are like, yes, I can't miss that week. We've sat together as pastors and, pastors and leaders and we've just prayed and said, God, what are you wanting us to talk about? Now, some of you are going to be like, oh, I hope they're going to talk about sex or identity or relationships and, and all that stuff happening in our world at the moment. And we didn't sense that right now is the right time for that. We're going to do a relationship series next year. We're going to step into it then. But these five topics we, we, we've kind of discerned, we believe this is the moment for us. That there are things that maybe we don't want to talk about, but we need to. We need to talk about them that we might have a biblical framework for processing them. And so today, it's week one. And I want to take you back to 2005. I turned on my TV. Back then, I was young. I was in, in grade 11. And uh, a movie trailer comes on the screen. And these words type across the screen. If you love your children. I'm like, wow, what a way to start off a movie trailer. Next line comes on the screen. If you love your family. I'm um, you know, holding bated breath. What's going on? If you love anybody at all, this is a must-see movie for you. I'm like, what a, what a way to start a movie. The next line came on. This is the scariest movie ever made. I'm like, who was the marketing campaign for this movie? And the next thing you see is the face of Vice President Al Gore. I don't know if you remember this. Standing in front of a crowd going, the world... Is hotter than it's ever been. I'm like, this year 11 student, I'm like, wasn't that scary? It's just Al Gore. He's scary, but not that scary. The next thing we see, floods, tsunamis, fires. And then these words come up on the screen. Say this. Is the world betraying us or have we betrayed our world? I don't know if you remember the movie An Inconvenient Truth. Does anyone remember that movie? It came out a couple of years ago, back in 2005. And it was like this moment he got a Nobel Peace Prize for it. And I actually, you know, was quite disturbed by this movie. So I'm like, what's going on? What's happening to our world? Apparently by 2020, everything was going to be done. Now we're here 2022, and some of the stuff may have happened, but not everything happened. But what that movie did for me was this. Is I started to ask this question, why, why do we have to care about this stuff? Why do we have to care about the environment? And so today, our first crucial conversation... I want to talk about creation, beauty in an age of utility. Now, preparing for today, I've got to be honest. I was sitting in this sermon last week with James preaching beautifully. I'm like, James has just rocked it. This is amazing. I hope no one tells anyone I'm preaching on the environment next week. Like, it will be like, oh, that's, oh, wow, I can't come. Like, I know some of your eyes are glazing over right now, and I get that. But I just want to suggest, maybe that's the very reason why we need to talk about this. Because I think this is close to the heart of God. There are three reasons that uh, most researchers and um, commentators say Christians don't like talking about this stuff. The number one, um, in fact, before I get there, here's the structure we're going to talk through. I want to talk through objections. Why don't we want to talk about the environment? Then we're going to talk about three questions. Does God care? Should we care? How should we care? But what are the objections that people often raise, particularly Christians, as to why we don't talk about it? The first one is politics. So many of us are like, I don't want to talk about this because it's so political. Right? If we're going to talk about the environment, pretty much what you're wanting us to do is, is take one of two seats. Either you know, we care about the environment and we vote for the Greens, or we don't care about the environment and we vote for the Liberals. Now, 
I know some of you are like, oh, that's not true. But that's to me so often the narrative that this is about. Depending on your environmental policy or how you work this out, it defines how you vote. And I just want to let you know, I think that's a really bad narrative. I think it's a really false narrative. Because I don't think the church should be telling you who to vote for. Unless the Nazi regime comes back into play, I don't think that's it. And my point of today is not that you leave here voting for a particular party, but that for whatever party you vote for, you have godly expectations of them. That's my hope. But this is not about politics, friends. This isn't a political issue. This is a discipleship issue. The second thing I would say is that sometimes we, we don't really talk about this because of a lack of awareness. We live on the Gold Coast. And to be honest, we're sheltered from a lot of the economic depravity, um, environmental depravity around our world. But in Madagascar right now, a country that was a tropical paradise, they're experiencing 85% of deforestation because they have to clear for farmland to overproduce rice to sustain the world's consumption needs. Most of their population is starving and is poor is on the, and on the brink of disaster because they've lost the natural environment around them because of the way that we are consuming. I think it matters to them. I think it matters to them. I think that might matter to God. The third thing is, is that I think we don't do this because we have this theology that says it's all going to burn anyway. One day Jesus is coming back and he's coming back with a fiery chariot. He's going to incinerate the whole thing. So why don't we pick up a sledgehammer and just help him out? And I think that's also damaging. And it's also really damaging eschatology, that, that this way of viewing the end things that I'm not sure is biblical or in line with scripture. So here's what I want to do today. I don't want to go to culture. I don't want to go to politics. I'm not even going to start with statistics. We're going to go where we always go in your life. We're going to go to the Word of God. And we're going to work out, hey, what does the Word of God say? And what we're going to find is not a political party to vote for, but a kingdom to advocate for. A third way of living that's neither green nor liberal nor labor, but is the way of Jesus and the people of God. Is that something we might be able to do together? Cool. Three people are with me today. Everyone else, enjoy the sleep. Thank you for having us online. Stay tuned. Now, here's where I want to start. I want to start with this question, does God care? And I want to move fast because we don't have a lot of time and we have a lot. Now, there's going to be some heavy lifting today, but I think we can do a bit of heavy lifting. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you're like, oh my gosh, what does heavy lifting mean? We're going to walk through Scripture. And I'll let you know if you're new to Christianity or if you're new to church, we go to Scripture first as our source of guidance and direction. And the first thing that, that the principle I think we find in Scripture is this principle written by a servant of God, David, in Psalm 24, verse 1, which is such a great place to start. And this is a good biblical principle for a lot of the crucial conversations. When we talk about stewardship, when we talk about reconciliation, this is a biblical truth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is where we start. This should frame our understanding. That primarily we have to enter this conversation with this understanding that humanity doesn't own the earth. This is God's. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created. And so to understand what's going on with our environment, we shouldn't look to the latest scientific commentary. We should go back and say, God, what did you originally intend this for? Why? Because I believe and follow a God that is intentional. A man named Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, says it like this. The creator has a purpose and a will for creation. The creation exists only because he wills it. The Christian faith believes this. none of this is by accident. There is an intentional creator who formed everything on purpose and is part of his divine will. So why did God create and why did he put us in the middle of it? Well, we find that out in Genesis 1, chapter 26. 
And if you haven't spent any time in Genesis 1 to 3, we're doing a series every year in Genesis. Next year is our final part of the series. But we started in the first 11 chapters of the book. You go back two years in our podcast and listen. But in Genesis 1 verse 26, we find why man was created. God says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, if you go deeper into the Hebrew here, which we don't have a lot of time to do today, what you find is when what God is doing is He is giving humanity its vocation. I have created and I have appointed that you are to rule and reign, that the earth may flourish, that not only you, but the earth will be, be, be fruitful and multiply in number. Really good biblical principle is this. Creation was created and it was good. And humanity was created to rule over creation. Really important principle as Christians. Humanity and the flora and fauna in our world are not equal. We are bearers of the image of God. But we are bearers of the image of God who have been set over creation, not to oppress it, but to bless it. Not to abuse it, but to cultivate it. This is God's original hope and desire, that the earth will be filled with what we need, but not to satiate our greed. There was this beautiful thing. A lady named Sandy Richter, a conservative theologian, puts it like this. Yahweh is indeed the ultimate sovereign, but humanity has been created as his representatives to serve as custodians and stewards, enacting the creator's will by living our lives as a reflection of God's image. We have received our authority from the creator. We rule as he would rule. We are stewards, not kings. It's like when you put a tenant in your house or in a house that you own. They are living there and stewarding that property and contributing towards you saying, this is not ours, this is somebody else's, but we get to benefit from it. Very similar principle here. And just like a tenant, we would ask questions if when we re-inherited the house back and they moved out, it looked nothing like it was originally created to look. We should ask questions there. What went wrong with the stewarding? What went wrong with the cultivation? What went wrong with what we're doing? And, and, and to be honest, friends, the reason why we start with the Bible is that we can't, we can't talk about where the environment is without talking about sin. We can't do that. And the biblical worldview of Christianity is actually the most helpful in this because it says that God's created order wasn't meant to be this way. Why is it this way? Because humanity, who was given the stewardship over the earth, instead of seeing the earth as something to be blessed by, saw the earth as something to satiate our greed and selfish desires. That when we were told not to eat from a certain tree, what did Adam and Eve do? They went and ate from the tree. Why? To serve and worship God and cultivate the earth? No, to exalt themselves and glorify their selfishness. They consumed when they were called to cultivate. And humanity has been consuming ever since. And the world is not better off for it. See, sin has broken God's created order. This is not the way that God wanted the world to, uh, to, to work. Natural disasters are not a product of just global warming. They are a product of the brokenness that humanity has introduced into our world. But let me say this. 
this is important, is that God's hope was not then to walk away from humanity, but actually he doubled down and chose to use humanity as his vessel of redemption to see it cultivated. This is why when God steps in and saves the people of Israel out of Egypt, he leads them into the desert, promising them a land that they will one day get to inherit and inhabit again as his faithful stewards. What God does with the people of Israel out of Egypt in the book of you know, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is he gives them a framework for what it means to cultivate. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we, we read this, Deuteronomy 6, 26, verse 1 to 2. When you have entered the land that Yahweh, your God, has given you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, you shall take from the first of all the produce of the ground that you shall bring in from your land that Yahweh, your God, has given you. and You shall put it in baskets and go to the place where Yahweh, your God, chooses to place his name. What is it talking about here? Well, they farm the land. They, they raise the livestock and then the principle is the first produce, the first livestock are given to God. Why? Because they are tenants in someone else's household. And it's a part of them religiously and sacrificially saying, we recognize this is not ours. It's so weird as Christians when we struggle with financial generosity or generosity in any way, shape or form. Generosity has always been a biblical practice of acknowledging nothing I have is yours. Nothing I have is mine, so everything is yours. I've done it twice today. Long day. Uh, I'm not sure he's what? This isn't biblical. There's nothing I have is mine. It's all yours. That's what he was teaching them to do. This isn't your land. I give it to you, but I can take it from you. Be blessed by it. But not only that, be governing it with my laws and restrictions. Why in Exodus, God actually teaches them an agricultural practice. He says, you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But the seventh, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So, which means to like, lie without producing a crop that you would harvest. So that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the wild animals may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh, you shall rest in order that your, that your ox and your donkey may rest. I said it in the first service. I was like, I'll swing by it. Of your female servant and the immigrant may be refreshed. What's God saying here? The purpose of your cultivation is not to squeeze from the earth everything you can. It is not to bleed the waters dry, sap the land of harvest, Overproduce livestock just so you can satiate your gluttony and your greed. You will rest. And what is he saying? So the animals and the least of you will be blessed by. What's God doing here? He's saying there is a rhythm to cultivation where you must interrupt your insatiable desire to get more by learning that there is a rhythm that says enough. This is a beautiful principle. That actually, uh, Scott and I were talking this week, Wrigley from Cooley, and he was saying there are, there are a lot of farmers in America that are now walking through the seventh year principle and they're seeing more of a harvest than ever because they're adopting the seventh year. In Israel, they still adopt this, this idea of letting things rest, not squeezing everything we can, but cultivating it that it might flourish. What, is we, what are we seeing here? Sandy Richter, in her book, Stewards of Eden, says this. In sum, the constitution of ancient Israel taught that economic security or growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land. Just hear that again. Economic security or growth was not a viable excuse for the abuse of the land. And that true economic well-being would come only from careful stewardship of it.
there's two ways we see our purpose here on earth. To rule and to reign or to abuse and strain. And I wonder how, how you're interacting. Are we a Genesis 1 and 2 people who see that God has redeemed us and restored us that we might cultivate the earth for not only what we need, but its own blessing and flourishing? It's not about not eating meat and not eating vegetables. It's not about your diet, but it's about going, hey, what's healthy, not just for me, but for the world? Or are we a people over here that are saying, the earth should produce whatever I want and satiate my selfishness? This is a good and important question we should ask ourselves. In the answer to the question, does God care about the environment? I think if you delve deeper into the Old Testament, we've just, taught, we've just done a survey of just a couple of scriptures. I think you see unequivocally, yes, but not as over or equal to its humanity, but as his humanity actually stewarding and cultivating it for his glory and their good. But the question you might be seeing, oh, well, that's lovely, Michael, but <clears throat> you know, Jesus kind of came along and did some things. And uh, I think you're talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We're now in a New Covenant right now, so it doesn't so matter so much. So we're kind of doing all what we want. You know, Jesus is more about saving souls now than saving the environment. So let's stop hugging the trees and let's get back out there, Michael. The ultimate question, should we care? Should we care? Pastor in America says it like this. What is left at the end of all things? Did Jesus die for plants? No. Did Jesus die for animals? No. Did Jesus die for people? And when it is all said and done, the only thing that will be left is the church. And this is kind of where we start to get the understanding. And John Wesley was big on this, actually. He was a forefather of our denomination and a big hero of mine. But the idea of the only thing that's important is souls and saving them. And the problem with it is that it's not wrong. It's just a couple degrees away from truth. Is that, yes, we are passionate about seeing people come to know Jesus. They are priority, image bearers of God. But God has a vision not just for your soul, but for his creation. Jesus said, I've come to make all things new, not just people new. And I think we have a weak gospel if it's just about my forgiveness of sins, not the transformation of everything. And we get this view sometimes because we think in the eschatology, and there are many good theologians that think this, that, that at the end of time, we, we, you can read in the scriptures like 2 Peter, it'll be on the screen, 3 verse 10 to 13, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 to 3, or Revelations are just some of them, where they talk about the day of the Lord, where the day of the Lord will come and use this language of a fire and, and a lot of melting, a lot of wrath, a lot of purging, everything's going to be blown up and destroyed, God's doing a fire sale and everything must go and there'll be judgment and then those who are faithful get whisked away to a cloud where we get to play harps and like it's going to be okay. Now, that's probably a gross over-explanation, simplification of it. But there, but there is a really generous theology that says there will come a purging of the earth where everything burns and falls apart. Now, the problem with that is, whilst not everyone agrees with it, not something that is my personal understanding of how the last things happen, if we go down that road too far, then we actually think that our role becomes helping God achieve the end, which is the destruction and annihilation of all things. But if you look at the corpus of Scripture, when anything is talked about as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and New, it has more understanding to be aligned with judgment than annihilation, which means that we affirm that there will come a day where God judges the living and the dead in all things. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everything gets burnt to crisp and everyone whisked away. Because in Revelations 21 and 22, God is clear. He paints this Edenic image that the garden that was lost will be restored once again. The new heaven and the new earth will come. And that is the kingdom that we long to be a part of. But even if people do believe this over here, which some of you do, and I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle it in any other way, but 
people would say, you know what, if you put a tenant in your house and you said to them, hey, could you stay here for five years and after five years I'm going to come and restructure and remodel, you came back after five years and they had started the remodeling and restructuring for you, you would go, that wasn't your job. I, I, was doing, I just needed you to be a tenant in my house. Put the sledgehammer down. It just doesn't make sense. Either way, you land there. But there's this other verse in the Bible that kind of insinuates a different narrative. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, we read this. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it into, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. The Apostle Paul seems to be writing about a different image about what Jesus is seeking to do. See, he's saying this, the creation is groaning. He is, it is groaning for what? That the sons and daughters of God might be revealed. Why? Because when they're revealed, they will be inhabiting their original calling of being cultivators, not consumers. Of being those passionate about the environment's flourishing, not its oppression. Why would creation be groaning and longing for the revealing of those who would relish in its destruction? Douglas Moo, a conservative reformed theologian, says this, If creation has suffered the consequences of human sin, it will also enjoy the fruits of human deliverance. When believers are glorified, creation's bondage to decay will be ended and it will, be partici and it will participate in the freedom that belongs to the glory for which Christians are destined, destined. Nature, Paul affirms, has a future with the plan of God. It is destined not simply for destruction, but transformation. Why do I say this? Because in my experience, we serve a Jesus. We serve a God who cares about resurrection, who brings life where there is death, who turns narratives around and restarts dead things again. But it calls us to a greater degree to recognize that we play a part in this. Gus S. Peth says this. He was, a, he was the chairman of the Council of Environmental Quality under Christian President Jimmy Carter. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And I think we would say this, even scientists in the room, amen. Because there's only one person knows how to transform. His name is Jesus. And we need to be a people that know that what our world needs is not necessarily better economic and environmental policies. It needs a people who have been transformed by their heart, living selflessly for the world, their saviour, and the good of all who live in it. So I'll draw five conclusions. First, the earth is God's and everything in it. Number two, he has entrusted it into our cultivation under our rule and reign. We're called to be the best gardeners there are. Number three, sinful greed and selfish. Our gluttony has actually led to the earth's destruction and where we are right now. But the gospel should not just transform us, number four, but lead us to be transformed in how we live in and amongst God's creation. And number five, we should want to caretake that environment so well that people go, tell me about the kingdom you're a part of. It seems to be filled with life. So much so that what we hand on to future generations is not a burning down house, but something with traces of redemptive hope in and amongst its very living creation. What a thing we could do. Because you know what, friends? 
I don't know if you've ever had anyone house sit for you. Has anyone ever had someone house sit for them? Why do you get someone to house sit? You get someone to house sit because you would love to come back to something that is generally in the same state that you left it. And we did this once. We went overseas. We had someone house sit for us. And uh, we came back to a house. There was nothing like we left it. Um, the shower was broken. There was, you know, just the sheets everywhere. There's a lot of broken cutlery and glasses and all this kind of stuff. We were a little bit horrified. The person didn't kind of, they kind of disappeared off the face of the planet for a couple of weeks. Um, and then we chatted to them and we were just like, we talked to them. And our explanation was like, hey, when you, when you looked after a house like that, it, it felt like, like you're way more important than our house. But we just want to let you know, it felt like you didn't care about us because we entrusted it to you and we kind of came back to a degraded kind of house. And, and when they saw that, they were really grieved. They're like, oh, you didn't just want it for my fun. You wanted me to take care of it. We're like, yes, yeah, it's so good. So, you know, if we relate that to us, how might God feel when we have the realities of the Pacific Ocean garbage dump? When this is the reality, our pollution is now flooding into his creation. How... What might it be the evoked from God when, when we actually partake in supply chains and in buying of food and clothes, clothes I'm wearing right now that are made by children in sweatshops that we would hate for our own children, but as long as we can't see or are aware of them, we're okay to excuse it away. How might God feel about Madagascar when we're like, yeah, but it's over in Madagascar and I don't know if that, you know, I'd love to do some more research, but where it's 85% deforested and people are really struggling to make ends meet. How might God feel when we find out that Australia this year is expected to waste $36.6 billion worth of food in a world where we produce 1.5 times enough food to feed everybody and we are going to waste $36.6 million, billion each year? We will spend 2,600 gigaliters of water just growing the very food that we will waste. That's five times the amount of water in Sydney Harbour. This amount of land used to grow this food that we will never eat and we will just throw out is larger than Victoria itself. What might that mean about our cultivation? And I just say these things because I just, I just want to ask the question, maybe this isn't about Greens versus Liberals. Maybe it's just about good stewardship. Maybe it's actually about us going, Jesus gave us this, God gave us this so that it might flourish, that it might point to a greater kingdom. Amen. We'll pray for Alpha in a second for those who have got their alarms going off. That's my alarm every week. I want to highlight this. I'm still thinking that I'm the only one who's got an alarm going off, though. You're all laughing. I'm just saying, why aren't all your alarms going off to pray for Alpha at 11.02? Anyway, move on. No judgment. We'll pray later. God longs to resurrect, renew, and restore. But you know what he longs? He longs for people who will live amongst his world faithfully and well. James, if you want to come, my man. I... I don't think the question is, should Christians care about the environment? I'd just actually love to ask this. I don't know how we could follow Jesus and not. Like, just to be frank. I'm not talking about go grabbing a sign and protesting the next coal mine. I think it's way more complicated than that. These are complex issues. So there are some communities whose livelihood depends on coal mining. I'm not saying that it's so simple, but I'm saying we've got to actually start caring about this stuff because God called us to. And we were part of the drive to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. The civil rights movement was led by Christians. Why is it that Christians are so slow to the bait here? Why are we dragging our feet when we have a better story for creation? We know. We should be the most passionate about this because this is the, the earth of God. And everything in it is His and we are His stewards. That should be what we're passionate about.
Sandy Richter says like this. How should we care? Well, let's start here. The earth, is, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, we use creation for what we need, not to fulfill our greed. So I just want to challenge us. Because there's a generation coming through that is actually looking at us and going, we don't, we're not stoked on what we're inheriting. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, we're confused because you tell us that God created the heavens and the earth, and yet that's, that's what you've done? And I think this generation coming through wants to see us not only preach the gospel, but live it. Live it in ways where maybe we are willing to live uncomfortably for someone else's flourishing. So there are some things I want to leave you with today to challenge us. So what can we do? How should we care? I hope that you haven't left here thinking, Michael told me who to vote for. My hope is, is that if you vote for the Liberal Party, the next election, you're going to bring the voice to bear on what matters. If you vote for the Labor Party, you want to bring your voice to bear on what matters. If you vote for the Greens or whoever else you're voting for, it's not about who you vote for. It's about us actually saying, this stuff matters to us and we're going to make sure it matters to those people in power. But where do we start? Well, let me finish here. Why don't we start today with radical gratitude? Why don't when your kids ask for more, we teach them to be thankful for what we have and we consume less? Why don't we just make that decision? Because gluttony and greed is just as bad as sexual sin, friends. But we seem to not talk about it very much. Why don't we just start with consuming less and being thankful for more? Why don't we start with Sabbath? Do you know, back in Jerusalem, Sabbath was a time where you weren't allowed to consume. You weren't allowed to deal and trade and buy. It was a day of resting from all that. You could eat, but it was about, hey, just step back from the economy of the world and dwell in the economy of the kingdom. Imagine one day a week you said to your family, we're not shopping today. We're spending time together with God and we're just going to be at peace. Oh man, the earth, that's a biblical principle. I think you'd be blessed. I think the world would be blessed. And finally, what if, you, what if you chose to vote with where you spent your money? I'm not going to spend there because I'm actually not sure. I, I genuinely think they, they have kids in sweatshops. Okay, well, just choose to not buy from that company. What a blessing. That's not going to be true for everything. Our mobile phones, friends, they, they're filled with slaves. Like, we're not going to be able to do it purely, but we can do something. We actually go buy locally. We could buy sustainably. We could start thinking about what does it mean to recycle well, not just stuff, chuck stuff in a yellow bin, but my brother-in-law is challenging with this. Like actually divide it out that it might actually be helpful and use. Why? Because we're cultivators. We're not consumers. And I think this stuff matters. Why? Because creation is longing for the sons of glory to be revealed. For you and I to stand up and go, we are part of a kingdom that one day there will be a new heaven and new earth. One day New South Wales will no longer flood. There'll be no more disasters. We will have peace and we'll be able to enjoy God's creation as it was meant to be in Eden. That's our mandate. That's our calling. Can I tell you how else I know it? Because when Jesus rocked up into the garden of the tomb when Mary was there by herself, do you want to know what she saw him as first? The Bible tells us it wasn't a rabbi, it wasn't a fisherman, it wasn't even a resurrected saviour. The Bible says Mary thought he was a gardener. I wonder if it's because the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to fulfill what the first Adam couldn't. To bring life, to cultivate it in all its forms, in your soul and in our world. So I've taken up gardening. And I suck at it, friends. Can I also just say, I also had a lot of people say, I'm coming over your house to teach you. I'm like, I, I think I might have a little too many people coming over my house to teach me garden at the moment. I'm fine. James does a good job of that. 
But um, I just, I think we need to be serious about this. And maybe you didn't want to have this conversation, but I think we need to. I think we need to. And here's what I know, that the Savior who stood in that garden and said, Mary, stands on the shore of your heart right now. And he says, before we start with the world, let's start with you. Maybe you're sitting and being like, I've been really selfish. Someone said to me, Michael, I think you need to call people to repent. So I'm going to do that. I think Christians, I think we need to repent. I think we need to repent of how we've used God's world. We need to return to its flourishing. I think we might have some people in the room today that you know what it means to groan and to long. Like, Michael, I didn't know that the creation was groaning. I'm groaning for a better story. Can I tell you that you're here today because God wants to give you a better story? Well, your life isn't about your selfish needs, but your life becomes about a far greater story than just your own. And if you want it this morning, God doesn't want to just start with the environment. He wants to start with your heart. I want to give you that opportunity now. Would you bow your heads with me?